Our speaker this evening is Robert Rosenthal, an old friend to most of you, and certainly no stranger to any of you, who will be speaking, uh, I'm sure, as, as truthfully as he can, on the interesting story of the John Carrera Library in Chicago. It's a great pleasure to welcome him here tonight. Well, thank you, Terry. You're as gracious as ever. And I shall try to tell the truth. In fact, uh, nothing but the truth this evening. Um, the paper I'm about to give you, it's really an address or some a gloss on a paper, <coughs> uh, concerns a theft that occurred in a institution in Chicago named the John Crear Library. I'll try to say a few introductory remarks before I get to the, to the presentation itself. I should say something about the Crear Library, <coughs> because the context of, it's exceedingly important to understand the context and the history uh, of that institution to really have a full understanding and a sympathetic understanding of the nature of the event, which was a theft. I think the same sympathy and understanding needs to be applied to certain other characters in this tale. And so I want to make sure that you're fully informed of the history uh, uh, and the background, not fully informed, but reasonably informed. Uh, the John Crear Library was one of a number of uh, private institutions that resulted in, the <coughs> in rather magnificent gifts to the city <coughs> at the end of the 19th century in Chicago and the result of uh, <coughs> the uh, rise of that city following the uh, Chicago fire and the Civil War when a great deal of capital was accumulated. John Crearow was a railroadman, made a great deal of money uh, selling supplies to the railroads which were stretching westward. Um, it was founded uh, after, uh, as <coughs> after his death by bequest uh, in 1895. A few years following the founding of the Crearow Library, and in a very early attempt to rationalize the collecting policies, if you will, uh, of uh, libraries in Chicago. <coughs> the Crear Library <coughs> uh, decided to emphasize the collection of science, uh, medicine, and technology, while the uh, Newberry, <coughs> uh, over a period of time, eventually became the uh, <coughs> institution It had a distinguished uh, staff and uh, over the years accumulated a distinguished collection which grew to approximately a million volumes, <coughs> plus it take a couple of hundred thousand. <coughs> More recently, following World War II, that library began to lose its constituencies and a confusion, in my opinion, began to appear about its mission within that city. Um, this had a great deal of implications, uh, many implications uh, for 
its support, at least on the old basis, which was private philanthropy, and certainly pointed out the inadequacy of its endowment. Not an uncommon condition of many private institutions and private libraries today. Uh, by the early 1950s, I think it's fair to say that the institution had begun a rather slow decline. <coughs> and uh, it moved in the early, in the the 1950s as a form of consolidation to the campus of the Illinois Institute of Technology, a technical school on the Chicago South Side. Previously, it had occupied a skyscraper at the corner of Michigan and Randolph Street, which is in the center, practically in the very center of the city, so it might have been, so it could be close to its constituents, that is, uh, practicing physicians, community, which was centered in the Chicago Loop. <coughs> a whole series of actions, administrative actions were taken, and I think it's important for you to understand this, to rationalize the institution. Uh, it had a large, included in its uh, definition of science was the social sciences. It cleared, it sold many of its very in the 1950s. Its great collection uh, on the history of economics, for example, was sold to the University of Kansas. Uh, it's had a great collection on women's studies, which I think was dispersed, some of it going to Kansas. Uh, there were a whole series of internal innovations and changes in the attempt to rationalize the administration and care and growth There was the down the relationship with the Illinois Institute of Technology uh, is a complex one, and essentially the new the Quirar moved out to the uh, campus, the IIT campus, to perform services, and they were reimbursed by the trustees of the IIT uh, to uh, to perform these uh, services for its students, as well as carry on the larger responsibility to the uh, city, to the region, and it even, and its national programs. And I did have a number of national programs. Anyway, that's the background so far as the, uh, <coughs> the, the physical context of the uh, theft uh, is concerned. <coughs> I'd like to say a few things about the <coughs> thievery of books, <coughs> which is a uh, topic of uh, increasing concern. Uh, both for librarians and uh, scholars and administrators. And as you all know, there's been a great rash of thefts in, the, in recent years. <coughs> Certainly one reason has been uh, I, we've all become more conscious of them. And there hasn't been a, I think, a major library, at least university library, in the country that I can think of that has wholly escaped uh, this type of depredation. Harvard, Yale, uh, Berkeley, Illinois. Uh, I was going to say University of Chicago, but I can't. I can't remember a theft uh, at Chicago, <coughs> and that may be out of our ignorance. I should say more than uh, any direct knowledge. Uh, but most of the larger libraries uh, have uh, been victimized. 
Now, there's a special problem about the susceptibility of books, and one of the problems of the regarding the thievery of books is just the sheer number of books and the similarity that occur that appears to exist between books. It's unlike a painting, which in itself is unique and identifiable. Hard, I, I realize I'm speaking to people who are, are intimate by and large with books, but most people hard, make it hard to make certain types of distinctions among books. At any rate, in any case, <coughs> Individual books have multiple copies of printed books, and that's the whole purpose of the process of printing. And to make distinctions, <coughs> it gets into highly technical areas uh, very quickly. So problems of identification become a very quick become a, a matter of <coughs> uh, expertise and a consciousness about that object. Uh, another problem with uh, with theft is the <coughs> cost of security in the face of other demands on a essentially passive institution. And libraries are, to my mind, relatively passive institutions. And the need to remain vital, it finds it's very difficult to justify the cost of security when there's so many other demands on libraries for salaries, for growth, and for other ways of remaining vital. In other words, security is essentially non-productive effort. <coughs> it doesn't produce anything. <coughs> and of course, there's the issue of the increasing awareness in the marketplace of the value of books, especially as the availability of other objects of value, jewelry, uh, paintings, uh, become uh, increasingly other objects disappear, and that's being transferred to books as something venerable, desirable, <coughs> uh, aesthetically pleasing, uh, however one wants to <coughs> rationalize it. Let me say a few things about the theft at the Kriroth. There are a few special characteristics of this caper. One is, and what makes it distinct, uh, one is the number and the importance of the books in Another is the rather curious way in which the theft was eventually discovered. Most interestingly, perhaps, for this evening, is the voluminous and detailed documentation that exists for all aspects of the theft. And perhaps in the longer range, the, 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 the moral and the implications it has for certain moral and managerial aspects uh, of our work with books. <coughs> uh, and not uh, indirectly uh, the uh, implications it has uh, for the changing nature of, of libraries. <coughs> now in presenting my more direct remarks this evening, <coughs> uh, and in presenting the whole story of this incident, uh, I've divided it into three parts. One is looking at it uh, from the viewpoint of the thief 
and describing his relationship with the institution, his methods, and how he eventually disposed of the loot. That's the introduction to the caper. The second part is uh, devoted to the detection of the crime and the apprehension of the culprit. And the third part is the attempts to retrieve the book. Now, this, uh, this evening I will, uh, will emphasize, for lack of time, uh, the first and second uh, portions of the, uh, <coughs> of the scenario. The third part uh, is fully documented in a transcript, most of it, uh, that was taken during the court proceedings in which the trustees of the Curar Library sued, uh, affirmed, John Howell Books of San Francisco for compensation or the retrieval of the book which, it, which that firm sold uh, unwittingly. But, but nevertheless, uh, was the property of the Curar trustees. Now, I want to give you some very basic facts about the, uh, <coughs> about the uh, theft, and there are two things you need to know. One, as the institution went into decline by the late 70s, there was discussion between the trustees of the Curar Library quite distinct from the trustees of the Illinois Institute of Psychiatry, but trustees of the Curar Library, to see if it could merge with a m more hospitable institution. Discussions took place with a number of libraries and universities. And <coughs> by April of 1981, an agreement to merge was signed by the trustees of the University of Chicago and the trustees of the John Curar Library. It's at this point in April of 1981 that the university began to assume responsibility for some of the books in the John Curar Library, although the John Curar trustees were still the legal, held legal responsibility or fiduciary responsibility for that and its endowment and its, uh, <coughs> and its assets. At the time uh, that the uh, merger took place, there was an immediate insistence uh, on my part. Once it became clear that the, the rare book needed to be rehoused, that an inventory be made. Uh, and I will get into that matter sooner or later. <coughs> uh, the whole process of inventorying that collection was exceedingly complex. It raised a lot of questions about delay, and I will get into this issue of the nature of assessing a large, complex body of books in a few moments. Uh, 
objective of this in inventory was relatively simple. It was just a matter of establishing what was the university assuming responsibility for, what was there and what was not there according to the record. The thief, incidentally, to give you some chronology, was apprehended in January of 1983. A trial occurred about a year later. He was sent to the jug for two years. He plea bargained, and the nature of that plea bargaining is rather interesting, not without bibliographical overtones or undertones. Uh, one other thing that came out of this merger was the creation of a new building on the University of Chicago campus. Uh, that is, the John Clear Library was rebuilt, in effect, and it is now the Consolidated Science Library on the, uh, the U University of Chicago campus. It costs the university, I think, $25 million to affect this merger. This money did not come uh, from the endowment of the Curar <coughs> Library. The present state of affairs, roughly, is that uh, the University of Chicago Library is in a grand process of assimilating uh, seven or 800,000 volumes. <coughs> it's something that's going to occupy my library for the next decade, one way or the other, uh, given the system and meshing the two collections. Nevertheless, it creates a grand science facility on our campus and uh, one that has long been overdue. Now, I'd like to say a few things about the theft, and uh, what I'm doing is giving you here some of the reverse information. You're getting information that we only found out after many months and years of working with those books, and I want to give you some of the basic information right from the start. The theft, <coughs> there were 500 and, the thefts began incidentally in 1976 and continued over a roughly a five to six year period. There were 572 books or titles stolen from a total of 27,400 rare books. Just in the use of that terminology, of what constitutes a book, uh, and I'm sure you're all familiar with this problem, a book or a title or volume or bibliographical unit was the bane of our existence as we had to get into these, this vast body of material. The market value of the individual titles stolen by the theft range from a few dollars to an individual volume worth $80,000, according to current fair market value. The thief realized a total of $247,000 from the sale of 226 books, all of which were sold to a single bookseller, <coughs> John Howell Books Incorporated of San Francisco. Of the, 200, of the 572 books stolen, <coughs> 396 ha were ultimately returned and are in our possession as of this date. 176 have been irretrievably lost. 
economic, bibliographical, that we have chosen not to pursue those books. That can all be explained. And it's a matter of open record. <coughs> uh, little more than 300 of the 572 books, a little more than 300, were retrieved by the FBI uh, when it apprehended remaining books, I think about 125, so, were in the possession of the bookseller at the time that the theft was uncovered or had been retrieved from customers of that, uh, who bought the books from that bookseller. Now that's the background, and what I've tried to do is give you the some of the very essential facts. Now I want to take you <coughs> into the rare book vault of the John Queerar Library and give you a feeling for what the thief saw when he walked into that area. And I'm going to, the rest of the presentation, uh, until the conclusion of the slides. <coughs> now, the slide, Terry. Uh, this is a uh, typical book uh, of the Some of the 
were not mutually exclusive. So there was overlap. Represented a advertising firm in Chicago that specialized in uh, advertising for the pharmaceutical trade and uh, for hospital uh, uh, medical supplies in general. The firm used Curar in an attempt to raise money. of responding uh, to the requirement of one of the uh, firms uh, who are paying money to the library. So there is a pressure to comply, to uh, perhaps to even acquiesce uh, on that. At any rate, there was this priest who had no previous knowledge of books, Here's another type of marking, uh, very typical, with a uh, stamping on the lower left-hand uh, corner, as uh, in this case it's called Hermes. I'm going to go very quickly here. Here's another type of stamping, forward, leather, and with the diver label here. Collect author collection uh, for 
Some had no marks. seen as a problem because he was concerned with those perforations and that's very important. And here it covers part of the text on the title page. And in fact, it was very ingenious. And there was at one point where he was he attempted to uh, replace the box. Again, a book I had never even seen before that turned up in Goldschmidt's last catalog. And I just said, I bet that's in Thoreau's collection. A wonderful book on veneering, uh, published in, I think, the high end of the late uh, 18th century, with uh, many, many sites uh, explaining how different the type of offbeat uh, book. of course, were a problem, and many of the plates were stamped on the first one. Uh, the, <coughs> I think the next, here's uh, some other rather attractive uh, plates in the uh, book on ornithology. I just picked two of these in. Lovely, exquisite uh, uh, volumes running throughout this Some of the plate books are rather And then here is a, uh, this book actually was one of the books that were stolen. <coughs> People really didn't know what to do with it. It was one of the uh, German uh, technical books at the turn of the century that were uh, class books that uh, had been 
open up for use uh, for any of you who have not seen the book. into the See his equipment. One of the things about this man, he was terribly fastidious. The first thing he did when he sold a book, he Xeroxed the title page. And, and we have the Xeroxes of the title pages where he's writing the instructions to himself. This is his inventory number. And that was the number that he kept control of his collection. That became very crucial later on when he started to, started to argue with the bookseller over his accounts. And the, his accounts with, uh, with uh, Warren Howell were the bane of poor Warren's existence uh, during the last years of his life. Uh, I can go into details about some of the negotiations that went on. All, those, all the ledgers uh, have, been, uh, have been saved on the thief side. Nothing was hidden. There was, there's always been the suggestion that uh, the full stories never come out. Well, the full story is in the record, and uh, there may be something hidden about the motive, and uh, 
playbook as it was rebound by Warren Howell. Although this is not a clue to the exact chronology of when particular books were handled. He saved old calendars. And here he's saying that it has a perforated title in it, told that he wants to be an unpainted part, could be repaired, perforations removed and saved, bookcase removed, pencil number or session. Now, <clears throat> from the viewpoint of the bookseller, and I'm not here to make a case one way or the other, the real issue is when and how, how much do the, should the bookseller have known? That's a basic question. How much should a bookseller know? The fundamental question in And when should the bookseller or anyone else who might learn, for that matter, have perceived a pattern developing? When any one bit of information may be a sport or irrelevant. Here is a notes that the thief kept on this particular book. He, I didn't show you the sign, but he had on the vulnerable was on the sign, a clean title page, a Xerox, JPL, lower left corner, of the front cover, 
most libraries when you say when the subject in the library is secured, that's the director's room, and there's a number on the bottom that you remove, uh, and that they also remove the book trays, basically anything else that might touch it. So that's what happened to that particular book, and we're able to verify that. The question is, of course, how would the bookseller know? That's a constant question. This is a very special promo. This is the first edition of the book by Conjure. Uh, it's also a censored copy uh, with the annotations of the censor. Now, <laughs> this is a rather deal of time to the study of In any case, we're looking at it, and I should say that how Warren Howell knows the importance. He's no dummy. He can read uh, the Dictionary of Science, bi Scientific Biography, as well as anyone else, and know that a annotation uh, of Copernicus is a hot book, a good book. But would people know about that annotation? He didn't know. Uh, and uh, in fact, the library obviously knew Exhibit card, which was exhibit caption card that was left on the book, and there are the notes. Um, he, he now he knows about the Nashen catalog. He's, he's learning from <laughs> He's no dummy. There's no way I could have removed the censor machine that uh, came from the Inquisition. you can see now, you're getting into his process of, of getting information, covering his tracks. Here's a book that was uh, recovered 
Bookseller didn't ask, where did these books come from? Because among these books was also uh, Edward Lewis, one of the great, the great uh, book collector, uh, history of medicine, at least the uh, book collection in science, uh, William Harvey, for example, Porter. Where did these books come from? Was the question, and that was put to the field. He said, met in Germany uh, while he was serving in the army. But they had been smuggled out and uh, coming in, into his possession to his wife from whom he had received the book. Uh, East Germany presumably came from the East. How did that book collection There were other issues. Among the things the 
Letters of Luther Burbank from American times. I don't know if Adley's seen them, but something of Now, anything can happen with the movement of books. We all know that. And it's very, very often very strange things. and work with this case, we have a history of book plate numbers drawn through our library, and we know the dimensions of the book plate, the size of the book plate, change. This became crucial evidence in anyone look at a book.
Also, tell where he saw the book. He had to. He didn't uh, perhaps understand the call numbers, but he said that uh, this is uh, the designation of the seven twelve. It's the six one and the Curry Canal, which is the location of where that would have been on the book. But these are some of his notes. Here's some more notes on the uh, Empress and Galileo that he, uh, some of which he. something that uh, the search was zealous. Let me tell you one interesting story about a book on uh, circulation of the blood. And we had to verify that the Curar owned the book. And very often, we could not do it. The acquisition record was not complete. And we had no familiarity with that library method. Um, so we went all over the place looking for dealer's catalogs. And up at the Houghton, we found a catalog of, um, of a book on the circulation of from a local dealer in New York City, very distinguished man, who sold the book to the Curar in 1914. We were able to establish that. The books were sold to Warren Howell sold it back to the dealer in New York City, who sold it originally to, um, to the Curar. And the dealer, in his write-up, the second time around, said, very rare, I have seen only one other copy. <laughs> it was the same, same copy. And this was just established by digging very deeply descriptions, and we were reading through all his catalogs, you can imagine, this was after the fact, I should say, which I know was shocking that the presentation not been complete as apprehended, because that was a great story, but I, I just wanted to take you this book has, had been declared lost at the, at the Curar. Well, I'm going to shoot these very quickly now. I realize I may be crossing through my uh, Here's the uh, inventory num sheet. Every book, our problem with that inventory was terribly complex. We had to establish, there was no shelf list, incidentally, for those How did you establish what was supposed to be in that, what was in that room, what was supposed to be in that room, and what was supposed to be in that room that was not in that room? That was the essential. Anyway, each one got a inventory number, so we at least knew as of a particular date that any book was missing, and that established our responsibility. When the numbering stopped.
was missing, it wouldn't tell you what book was missing, because there was no shelf space. So we had to Xerox the title pages of 27,000 plus volumes, reduce them to this form, which is 8,500. Then, then, as you know, I hope you're sympathetic to this problem, then establish that you make the And then the call number, and then look through 400,000 sheets. This is Xerox of the type of the shelf books, the general shelf books. And remembering those 50 or 60 categories, pull out the top sheets and all those categories. Essentially, the 27,000 books. Titles that belong to that. It was really a monumental task for us to this problem. The best thing is got the great option to So we're working on these now. I should say these people <coughs> are functioning for five years. Um, uh, they're going <coughs> we have one uh, sheet like this that is essentially the shelf list. We Xeroxed it in another zero, uh, sequence. It's become the catalog because we now very quickly our ESC in a few moments. Let me just show, show you this. This is our new manuscript of Nicholas Kakusa that was instrumental in finding the truth for locating it. And it's one, I think, the only manuscript in the church that, uh, that showed. And uh, I'll tell you about that in a moment. We'll take about five minutes. Um, here is a description of that manuscript uh, from Goldschmidt. Thank you. 
another copy that the thief might have stolen. Those are all the slides right there. Let me uh, conclude now. It's really not the conclusion of the chapter, but uh, an essential part of the of the tale, and that is how. De Motu Cordis. Efforts were being made to locate this copy. You can imagine the confusion that the then librarians had in this area. Most of the clerical help had no knowledge of books and, in fact, were, were uneducated. So there was some indication when the university entered the picture that uh, there may indeed be some important books missing, but we didn't know how many. We knew a few titles, and that was one of the reasons for this massive inventory process. In the summer of 1982, Remember the uh, merger took place in the spring of 81. And by the time we were just completing the inventory, a letter was received quite by chance from a very eminent scholar named Raymond Kablonsky medievalist who had devoted much of his study to the works of man, German late medievalist philosopher named Nicholas Kuski, 
in, in fact, publishing the collected works of Brissett and Nicholas. In the early 50s, he had requested a manuscript of Nicholas de Cusa that he knew was in the Burer Library. In fact, we have the letter that E.P. Goldschmidt informed Podlansky in 1934 that that manuscript was indeed, he had sold it in Summer, late summer of 82, a letter comes from Mr. Koblansky, or Professor Koblansky, who teaches at Oxford in Cincinnati, saying, I have had the greatest luck. I found your man the, that manuscript in the Staatsbibliothek in Berlin. Your manuscript is now in Berlin, the one you didn't let me see. <laughs> and if you want to know more about it, read the introduction to volume 11 of my Oklahoma, or his Oklahoma, but it was not. In any case, the librarian at that time forwards the letter to me with the question, what should I do about it? I said, what should you do? Well, that was one of the quickest decisions I ever made. I said, get me volume 11. <laughs> and sure enough, it was in the bindery. That, that didn't stop the book from appearing very, very quickly. And there in Latin, in the introduction, were the history of that manuscript where Professor Kablansky understood it, saying, in effect, that uh, he had heard the manuscript had been in Fura. It had been sold by Jacques Rosenthal in Munich in 1926 to E.P. Goldschmidt in London. The next year, it had been sold to library, that he had made requests for this manuscript that were not forthcoming, but in 1979, in his annual report of the Staatsbibliothek, he had seen that the uh, manuscript uh, was in the Staatsbibliothek, and indeed he had seen it and used it there, uh, and they had acquired it uh, from a very eminent American bookseller, San Francisco, Barney Rosenthal. The question was put to me, what do we do about it? I said, I know what you do about it. You write Barney Rosenthal and ask him where he got that manuscript. Now, you have to understand that some of these people had not been involved in anything like this before. Not that I had been involved, but it was quite obvious that's what the question was. A letter was sent to Barney I had drafted it, the librarian sent it out, just asking him about his manuscript. Uh, Barney, who was a very close friend of mine, sent a letter back to the Tennessee Times. He thought it was a very reputable 
bookseller. He's on the up and up. Thank you very much. And the letter was then forwarded to me. Barney's reply. And uh, the book the librarian said, well, I guess that finishes it. I said, no, it doesn't. <clears throat> At this time, there was tremendous pressure building up on us from a variety of sources to produce a rare book, a book that we're missing. And we were putting all of this into the computer because we were adding books. Remember, there were 50 categories. Books turned up all over the place because of misfiling and misunderstanding because of the general conditions that existed. In any case, uh, there was pressure to reveal. And I said, it cannot be revealed if you want a definitive list until the record is completed. And we were just about 90% complete about at this point in our checking. And a trustee of the Furor, also a bookseller, at this point called Barney. Uh, <coughs> Barney immediately called Warren Howard. Warren, who really had nothing to hide, <coughs> told Barney, and word came back. that it was purchased from a man named Putnam, Putnam, uh, from Milwaukee. And he had bought a great many books from this gentleman from Milwaukee. And uh, he sold it, uh, Warren had purchased them and sold it to Barney. It was not Warren Howard's kind of book. And it turned out it was just Barney Rosenthal's From the revelation of this name, coming back through San Francisco to the two booksellers and into uh, the record of the Furore, the name was immediately linked with a man named Joseph Putnam, who used the name Putnam, P-U-T-N-A, which was his real name, and who was the gentleman. FBI was immediately notified at this point, and uh, Mr. Putnam's residence in suburban Milwaukee was raided, and 325 volumes and all that paraphernalia were located there. The next problem, and that's how the uh, case was busted wide open. The real next issue became one of restitution for the Horton book uh, that had uh, been sold. As I told you, there the priest, they, the priest had profited by approximately a quarter of a million dollars. He had spent all of this money, uh, most of it. He had no assets except an automobile in, again, his house, uh, <coughs> modest house in Milwaukee. Uh, how a restitution should be made. Uh, Warren Howell caught in the middle of this. Uh, he was 
very much a party to it in the sense that he handled property that was dealt with. A part the litigation was instituted by the trustees of the Bureau Library since it was still their responsibility versus uh, John Howard Brooks. Um, and this went to trial last spring in Chicago. And uh, in the end, I think it was settled out of court. It was settled out of court, and I think uh, favorably uh, to the uh, benefit of John Howard's estate. Uh, he died, as you may have known, in the course of this. I think with great anguish. I think it's unfortunate, but he actually had a very uh, important uh, career as a bookseller, and it was tragic that he then. Had this uh, case uh, unresolved. I think uh, we did well, uh, and I, I think everyone did well in this in terms of Warren's memory. It says a great deal, not so much about him as a, uh, I would say, uh, as a, and I'm speaking as a friend, as a bookseller. I think there was no question of his honorable It may say more about very vital character and his need to fulfill certain very deep urges which was a possession and sale of books and what it really did for his uh, sense of vitality. He was a very vital man. I think the university uh, came out very well for us. We have caught that kind of debt. I mean, we've got 27,000 400 volumes that are going to keep us busy digesting for many years to come. We've been fortunate enough to get some rather interesting funding uh, to work with those books, to integrate them, and I think to make them uh, useful not only to our own scholarly community, but to scholars from the whole <coughs> country. Uh, in this incident, uh, I'm sorry that I have not given had to give short shrift to some of the legal issues that came up during the trial uh, in terms of the identification of books and how do you know a book is the book you're talking about. It's, uh, and the nature of library cataloging and identification. There are underlying themes here of responsibility of professionals as well as fiduciary responsibility. But all I can say is the running of institutions are very complex and that libraries are very complex.